0: Uh, hey guys, it's Pete. Just one brief uh, disclaimer before I get going. First, I had my microphone settings changed when I recorded the last episode, so you are going to hear some background noises as well as me breathing heavily or moving in my chair. Just sorry about that, and we will definitely get better for the next one. Thanks.
1: These days, everyone cries, say, Uncle, cool.
0: I retrieve the Drawing our minds Your body gone We shall keep the man
1: Welcome everyone to, well I guess this is a very special episode of The Frustrated Fans. We're going to teach you a lesson today. No we're not.
0: Well, maybe teach writers for listening in the odd chance some Hollywood junk... Junkie actually listens to the show, and when to use death in fiction and when to not.
1: Oh, you mean the writers of Transformers and Star Trek Into Darkness?
0: There's that, and uh, you mean Michael Bay has writers in his movies?
1: Point. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I also said Star Trek Into Darkness, but it's the same people.
0: That's another rant for another day.
1: Or another podcast. Yes. Savor the jokes now, folks. You're not going to hear, be hearing many more for the rest of the, the rest of the podcast. Oh,
0: we'll try and make jokes, but
1: yeah, uh, we're gonna today. We're going to be talking about deaths in fiction, more specifically, uh, two that we both share. That we both basically ones that are close to us. But two of them are going to be ones that both of us are familiar with, and then we've each picked one where it's like a personal one for us. And so. Needless to say, there's going to be spoilers.
0: Right. So if you don't want to hear anything about the first run of Full Metal Alchemist, Transformers Beast Wars, Corpse Party, Corpse Party Book of Shadows, or the Star Wars Public slash Imperial Commando books and games, turn off your podcast now.
1: Yeah, and for those of you out there who are used to hearing disclaimers on the radio… Warning, the following podcast contains spoilers for full alchemist, Beast Wars, Corpse Party, Corpse Party Book of Shadows, and Star Wars Republic Imperial Commando. If you do not wish to be exposed to spoilers, please support the official releases and return after spending money on these great franchises. You have been or now listening at your own risk. Sit back and enjoy the show.
0: That may have been slightly derivative, but we'll, give, we'll move past it. <laughs> 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 All right, so where do we begin? Deaths and fiction are an interesting part of various fandoms and uh yeah, there's when you look over the span of all the human various medias, it's there are examples of very good ones, there are examples of very bad ones. And then there's people like George R R. Martin, who likes to kill characters for fun. <laughs> yeah, Game of Thrones. Ah Well I've never seen it or read it. Eh, I'd read the books first. So, but let's be honest here. Character deaths in media have to be done extremely carefully. If it works, it can be a very good moment in fiction. If not, well, you get jazzed in the first Transformers movie. Yeah.
1: yeah. Or Kirk in Star Trek Into Darkness. And no, that's not a spoiler. You can't spoil something that's rotten. Ooh. Yeah. You really don't like that movie. you don't like that movie. So. Not after watching it the second time, but it's another day. Now, when it
0: comes to – I mean, granted, on this show, we've done a lot of – I guess you could call kids' media and some adult media. Yeah. But most of the stuff we've talked about, deaths do not happen all that much unless it's usually part of an origin story. See, Batman, Uh, Superman, things
1: like that. Spider-Man. Yeah. Daredevil. Every yeah. single superhero except – well, not the Fantastic Four. They just got – or the Incredible Hulk. They just got – Or Wonder up. Woman. Or so. Wonder Woman. True. Yeah.
0: And, I mean, there are exceptions.
1: Yeah. So
0: so when this does happen in various medias, it's usually best to take notice. Then there are cases where, like I said, where the authors are just messing with their fan expect- expectations. <laughs> you know, next time we do this, we should definitely touch on Redwall just for the hell of it.
1: Okay. It was, yeah. Every single one of those has at least one death.
0: With a lot of off-screen deaths, that,
1: yeah. This is true. Yeah, I think with deaths, at least for me personally, I mean, it kind of depends on, like, att- attachment to the character. And also if resurrection is commonly used in the franchise. Dragon Ball Z! <clears throat> Excuse me.
0: You had something in your throat there? Yeah,
1: yeah, Dragon Ball. Um... Oh, and that actually happens in GT. He gets a Dragon Ball caught in his throat.
0: That's a fandom we need to touch on. Oh, yeah. <gasps> oh, God, yes.
1: Yeah, in Dragon Ball Z, sometimes the deaths were good, but then it's kind of, a, sometimes it's undermined by the fact that, as they said in, like, Tien, the character Tien points this out in the abridged version of the show where he says, like, why do you care? Like, we are literally waiting to, go, to come back to life. You know, Yamcha says to him, you're acting like death has no consequence. It really doesn't. <laughs> so th- there are moments in it, though, that it does work. Like, I think Vegeta's death in the Majibu saga had a good impact because they actually played it out that, th- that he wasn't coming back. Well, that didn't work for so out well, so well. No, but still, for at least for a good chunk of episodes, but we can focus on Dragon Ball Z and th- that stuff. Another time. Oh,
0: it's time is coming. Oh, yeah.
1: Um, I think the best ones are if the event itself is really good, the emotion is good, the pacing is good, the music is really good, and you feel like now that there's something missing from the story.
0: Well, much less if if the death was – what's the word I'm looking for? If there was sense or if it was senseless. Yeah. So that could definitely – I mean, leave a, leave an impact, too.
1: Yeah, and then, I mean, granted, it can be played for laughs, like Church in Red vs. Blue, who I think he's been killed, like, 18 times in the show. At one, right. po- at one point, he even rants off all the different ways that they've killed him, which, by the way, a couple of those were just caboose. Where he said, you blew me up with my own tank, you shot me in the head, you put a bomb in my gut. Control F you. <laughs> Control F you. Yeah. Or heck, even in season nine of it, they make a little joke where uh, Church gets shot by Donut and Tucker and Caboose are on the side. And Tucker goes, can can we can help out? And uh, Caboose goes, I don't know. I don't think I can get such a good shot at Church from here. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
0: So. All right. Let's move on.
1: So let's talk about the first
0: one. And um, okay, with is Mace Hughes and Full Metal Alchemist. And uh this was actually happened in the original manga before the first anime series was met, much less brotherhood. the second anime series known as Brotherhood came along mm-hmm. uh,
1: but it definitely comes out of nowhere yeah. and just so. just to point out, we're covering the first anime because I haven't read the manga I haven't seen brotherhood I don't really care. <laughs> i don't really I've to, read to the them.
0: I've read a, a portion of the manga and I've read I watched all of Brotherhood and they play it it's pretty much the same. Oh okay. So yeah. I'm almost to the exactly the same.
1: Oh, okay. Well, for my experience it's just from the original anime. I think I've read some a couple of novelizations of Fullmetal Alchemist that were actually pretty neat. Mm. So let me
0: ask you uh what was your first experience to the series
1: to the fandom? Um I found it on Adult Swim actually. Same here. And I can't remember which episode I like when I started watching. I think it was it was when Ed and Al first run into Scar when it's like raining and everything and Ed gets his arm blown apart. And then I eventually just downloaded the show online when it was being fan subbed and I don't even remember what the heck happened to it after that, but I ended up watching through it I think at least twice. And I watched the movie that came out too. And I remember really liking it. I haven't Watch actually rewatching episode 25 for this the first time I've watched the show in at least a couple of years.
0: My experience was kind of similar. I knew Adults Women had already put it out, and I was kind of watch. I maybe watched an episode or two here and there, mm-hmm. but and I kind of get adjusted to the original story maybe about four or five episodes total. But, um, so I had I really hadn't been following the series that close, but. Uh, I remember the episode's Impact, I was just like, Whoa. This is new.
1: Yeah, this one kinda came out of nowhere for me. Yeah. It was pretty big. Granted, it's not the first death in the show, far from oh, it. Oh no. God not it. even the most like horrifying death. No, it's trying to be told. Oh god, yeah. I can't even for a while I could not rewatch that episode. Um or the episode right after it. But, yeah, it's not the first one, but it's the first one since the one, the very gruesome one we're referring to, that actually means something. Because, to be honest, seeing, um, what's his name, uh, but, uh oh, God. Blue Rose what?
0: Guy. What? Was it the Blue Rose Guy?
1: Now the, yeah, I think so. He was like the Iron Blood Alchemist or something they called him. Oh, Bas Yeah, that was it. His death. I'm I, thinking of someone else. I don't think anyone cared that he died. <laughs> well, he's a <laughs> it, jackass. That I was mean. a pretty badass moment, too, where Scar just grabs him by the face and the back of his head explodes out. Right. So, yeah, this was like so, the first death since that. Right.
0: So, for those of you who haven't seen this, so Hughes is kind of he's uh, part of. This is a fascist military-controlled state, and he's part of the military's investigation crew. He's mil- military police. It's his job to weed out corruption, much less notice, investigate crimes. And he's helping the main characters, the two Alwork brothers, uh, both in po- both pointing them in the right direction, as well as giving them practical advice and helping them do research now and then.
1: Yeah, he's actually probably the closest thing to a father figure that they get in the show outside of Mustang and their actual father.
0: But let's come back to this after a quick break. Sounds good. In the story, there's an uh, kind of an underlying element, this so-called homunculi, and later will be revealed Dante, who are kind of influencing things from the background, and their presence has been more or less semi-revealed. To the point that people are definitely on their trail. So, and Hughes is one of the front runners in doing the investigation.
1: Yeah, and in this episode, skipping over literally the first ten minutes of it because it's practically worthless. Um, Hughes has stated to the command, like the head of the entire military, um, Fuhrer Bradley, that he wants to look into this. He does, you know, he wants to uncover everything and Bradley gives him his, you know, permission and Hughes says he wants to speak with a Dr. Marco who had performed research on the Philosopher's Stone, which is a huge plot point of the entire show. It's the MacGuffin. Yeah. So. Um, but unbeknownst to him and pretty much everyone else, uh, Dr. Marco was killed by one of the homunculi in a previous episode. Yeah. Om um, nom nom. Yep. Um. Oh, yeah. That's who killed Yeah. Uh, I so. why no one
0: found the body. Yeah. Well, lust tells. I think it's lust or envy tells Ed.
1: By the way, you want to know what happened to Marco? Uh, Ugh. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Um. So Hughes looks into it, and we see a moment of him at his house. He's kissing his daughter goodnight, which that's a common gag of the show is he's constantly showing pictures of his daughter to people, which is... And before that, he was showing off his girlfriend then then wife. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so. And so he tells his wife, uh, Gracia that he needs to, you know, he's going to continue looking. He has to finish this. Yeah, Yeah, he has to finish. This is something he needs to do. And we find out it's connected to Roy Mustang, who has also been kind of interested in, you know, he's been part of the Elric's uh, history in the military. Well, he's Ed's commanding officer as well. Yeah, and he's the one who kind of recruits them, though, too. Mm -hmm. And so... He basically – we kind of find out it's implied that Hughes is doing this so he can give the information to Mustang so Mustang can rise to the top. Basically, Hughes is kind of his silent partner, constantly pushing him, pushing him, pushing him upwards. And so as he's doing the research, he stumbles across a name, Juliet Douglas, and he keeps scratching his head, who is this, who is this? And he realizes it's the same name as the Fuhrer's secretary. And all of a sudden, like, all these things go off in his head, and he orders his assistant, Sheska, to put all the books back that they pulled out, put them all back where she found them, and, oh, yeah, you're fired.
0: And he's trying to do it to protect her, obviously.
1: Exactly. We find out later. Which, that doesn't help. (laughs) It doesn't work, because it just makes her more confused and wanting to know what's going on. Right. Um, And Mustang, Mustang, without letting anyone else know, has already left for where Hughes is central with his second-in-command. All right,
0: And here's where I don't get. If Hughes just discovered this huge secret and it's goes right up to the the top guy's office, he really shouldn't be going alone anywhere to confront this. No, no. 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 This is when you, you know, find someone like mu- wait for Mustang, to contact Mustang, mm-hmm. move your family to a safe house yeah. and then
1: figure it out. <laughs> yeah. That I think at this point he wanted to try and Kind of shoulder it all himself because I, as part of his reasoning for getting to this was he was trying to protect the Elric brothers because they, every time they got close to this really bad things would happen to them and like I said he's kind of like a father figure to them and he really cares about right. them. So so yeah. yeah, he meets up with uh, Juliet Douglas or that's probably not her real name. We eventually find out she's something very different. And he starts kind of, like, feeding a little information to her. And then she just says, yeah, oh, yes. And then Juliet Douglas became the Fuhrer's secretary. You wanted to see Dr. Marco, right? And he just said, and Hughes goes, he's not behind this door, is he? And all of a sudden, lust, one of the homunculi pops out. And Hughes just instantly punctures her head with a knife. He's been shown, he's been displayed as a competent fighter throughout, like, the whole show, too. Right, for one of the very few peop- like competent fighters that's not an alchemist, which I think is right. pretty cool,
0: so at this point, Hughes runs
1: Yeah. uh after a another character,
0: lieutenant Ross arrives to help and shoots shoots at lost a bunch, and they run off and then but you, there's this kind of knowing
1: look between Juliet
0: Douglas and lost like yeah, we still got him,
1: mhm. Yeah, and Lust rips the knife out of her forehead and we fu- continue to see that the homunculi don't really die, or at least easily. So Hughes tries to call Mustang up, finally, but he gets pissed because he just found he now just finds out that Roy already left. And he says, you know, like this type of information could get you to the top. What the hell are you doing? He then looks at Ross for a second and just kind of quietly draws one of his, kni- one of his knives. And he goes like, let's leave. All of a sudden he puts a knife up to her throat and says, the real Ross has a mole under her right eye. This one doesn't.
0: At this point, what we find, effectively, is we find out the shapeshifter hung oculi Envy. She's like, oh, really? And then creates it right in front of him.
1: Yeah. Which was a neat little effect. And just as Envy gets ready to shoot him, he slashes his or her or its throat. It. Its throat and walks away. And he says, you know, I have a family to return to, but Envy immediately recovers, and after seeing a picture of Hughes' family, transforms into Hughes' wife and shoots him while in that form.
0: Well, he also uses Hughes' shock at seeing his own wife with a gun to him, uh, to that second of disbelief, and capitalizes on it and shoots Hughes.
1: Yeah. Then we get his funeral, which is Um, –
0: Probably one of the most worst scenes in the entire show. Oh,
1: God. This for heart wrenched, for feels, as the internet would put it. Oh, God. This is essentially like one of the creators walking up to you and grabbing you, like grabbing you by the heart, squeezing, going, You will feel things about this. <laughs> um, at his funeral, we mentioned he has a little girl. She's too young to understand why they're burying her daddy. Or that he's, like, gone, gone. Yeah, and she keeps screaming this, and Hughes' wife has to hug her and try to explain it. While you see Mustang standing there just, like, kind of quietly shedding tears, you see uh, Armstrong, who is this giant guy covered in muscles, is crying his eyes out. He's
0: the general giant, so to speak. Yeah.
1: So this guy who's been seen as, like, an actual badass in battle is crying his eyes out. And so Mustang, after staring at Hughes's grave, which we find out he was promoted to brigadier general after his death, and which
0: is actually pretty standard in the military—you yeah. get promoted, officers get promoted to ranks for dying in action.
1: Yeah. The Mustang kind of takes this as a little slight. He's like, "You got ahead of me." Um. And, but he says to—he says that he still plans to rise to the top to his second-in-command, Hawkeye, and she says that she'll stay by his side. The episode ends with Ed and Al eating food made by Gracie, and Ed sees this kind of like transparent image, probably like a like, kind of like a ghost image of Hughes waving goodbye to him. And yeah, yeah they don't find wow. out that Hughes is dead until way later in the show. And, they take it well. Oh no! Yeah, Ed <laughs> breaks through a floor. Um, right. Opinions yeah. go. Dear God, this is a tearjerker. At, at least, like the ending segment is a huge tearjerker. Um, I re- like I said, I recently rewatched this. Uh, yeah, I got pretty misty eyed when I was watching that funeral segment. because I think I forgot about what happened during it. Um, yeah, I mean it's sad enough that Hughes is dead because he's a he was a really nice guy. He's one of the few like non jerks in the show. You know, he actually has a real moral compass. Um, but the scene where Alicia is, Elisa, or how do you pronounce her last name, her name, and when she's... His daughter. Yeah, his daughter is just not understanding why her dad, they're burying her dad, is just, oh, like I said, it's like the creator walks up to you and just squeezes your heart.
0: Uh, I am going to say punch you in the balls for that works. Yeah, so
1: that well. too. Um, I really liked him, and I remember his introduction was really cool, you know, he was seen as kind of a badass and he was like a he was just a fun character to watch too like he could be serious and he could be goofy and he found like a good middle ground between the two um the only real issue i have with the episode and kind of the way they handle the death is the early part like i said the first 10 minutes of this episode suck they're terrible um you get Complete like the beginning of this episode is completely at odds with the direction that it goes. Where it's all goofy. You get the character Winry acting like a petulant little child. You get Aaron and an Al acting kind of like goofballs at one point. And setting up, they do set up a plot point for later on. But and I do like how Hughes realizes that. them going like, oh, we're we're, we're done with the Philosopher's Stone is them just trying to throw everybody else off. But uh, yeah. Other than that, it's a good episode, and it also does do a good disguise. You know, saying like it's more of a shocking death rather than a like you kind of see it coming. Death. Right. For
0: me, again, I mentioned this was I, this was kind of like my sixth episode or so. It was pretty early in watching the show. It was just like I, I I knew enough about Hughes to know he was a decent character at the time, but to see him just senselessly slaughtered all to protect the secret, yeah. Like you said, he's kind of one of the non-jerks. He's a dedicated husband and father. He's ultimately just trying to do the right thing, yep. which makes him one of the very few ethical types in this show in the first place. Because most of the military characters are, well, amoral jerks. Yeah. More importantly, Hugh's death not only is a shock to the Watcher, but it's proof that anyone can die in this show.
1: Yeah, he's the first... Like you said, there were deaths before this one... One of them, would, Ed and Al's mother, which happened in a flashback. It already happened by the start of the – like, timeline-wise by the start of the show. And then there was the other death. Um, this was the first one where it was a standard main character, somebody who had been in the show for a lot more than just a couple episodes. Right.
0: Well, arguably you could say Nina, um, shout Tucker's daughter,
1: well, she was only in it for, like, two or three episodes. Though I meant, like... Still. I know. I'm, that, I'm just saying, like, this yeah. is somebody who's been there, not since the beginning, but all, pretty much been there since Ed and Al became, uh, you know, when Ed became a state alchemist. Like, he's been through, right. for them since the beginning. And, heck, they even helped uh, his wife give birth to her to the daughter. I mean, they've really been there a long time. So, great. I think that covers everything for this one. Yep. All right. We'll come to yours after a quick break. Sounds good.
0: All right, then, and we're back. Let's go ahead and move on to your specific death you wanted to talk about, and we'll go from there.
1: Okay. Um, mine is from the game series Corpse Party, uh, specifically a little bit of a cheat. Uh, it's the char- however the character dies in both of the games that's been released, Corpse Party and Corpse Party Book of Shadows. And it's actually two separate deaths, and there's no resurrection involved in that. I'll get to that when I read the second game. Um, I've played a lot of games, obviously, and I've seen a lot of major characters die. Um, spoilers for other... There's going to be spoilers for everything. Just massive spoiler warning for every single thing, just, just so everyone knows. Uh, Eris from Final Fantasy VII is probably the most famous spoiler of all time. <laughs> and one of the most famous game deaths. Chrono from Chrono Trigger, who's the main character of the game. he He gets better. It happens. Yeah, and in the case of not knowing if the character is coming back or if they're dead or if they're in a coma, um, Alcade from GU. which if anyone hasn't played, I recommend that trilogy on the PS2. It's amazing. Um, But for me, out of all the deaths I've seen in games, nothing comes close to um, Seiko Shinohara from Corpse Party and Corpse Party Book of Shadows.
0: What kind of game is Corpse Party?
1: Um... Or it's the first game was actually created in RPG maker, you know, like you see, no the, yeah, you, know, you see all those like kind of 16 bit, like kind of knockoff RPGs online. Uh-huh. This was made using that engine and originally it was a PC game, which found out recently we're going to be getting the original PC game. In the U.S. Yeah.
0: What, on Steam or something?
1: Uh, I don't know if it'll... It'll probably be released on Steam. Uh, XSeed is bringing it out. They've been the ones who've been localizing these, and I'm really looking forward to it, and I recommend that you play it. It is... This is a really good series. And the second game is actually split between a point-and-click horror game and visual novel, which, for those who don't know, visual novel, it's a Japanese genre, um, that does not appear very often over here. It's mainly you read through, like, you see a whole story, and there's very little interaction at times.
0: So something like Phoenix Wright?
1: Yeah, kind of like that, but with sometimes visual novels, novels have even less interaction than that. Oh. Yeah. Um, huh. I'll, I'll put it this way. Chapter 3 of Corpse Party Book of Shadows, you make two decisions... At one point, and that's it. The rest is all scenes and dialogue and stuff like that. You have very little control over it. Which, is which for this series, it's actually fine. Is the gameplay itself is just okay, but the story is the real draw. The story, the atmosphere, the music, the characters, and just the fact that both of these will scare the living piss out of you and make you realize that 16-bit sprites can be as frightening as stuff on the Xbox 360.
0: Well, I have to ask, is this just jump scares, or no. is this
1: actual, like, there is one, true horror? There is one jump scare out of both games, and it's in the second game, and you can, and you don't even have to see it. because I, okay, saw, I saw it because I screwed up. <laughs> Apparently, if you click on a little ghost kid, bad things happen. <laughs> um, no, it is all, it's all in the atmosphere. This is a series that you need to play with headphones, because they use really good audio tricks where at one point, I swear to God, I had the headphones on, a character in the game spoke, I thought someone was right behind me. Like, they really... The microphone that they record all the voices with is really unique. They call... I can't remember the exact name, but all the uh, voice actors actually said the mic itself was kind of creepy looking. Because it looks like a head. Okay. Yeah. And so... The character I picked from this, Seiko... She's actually not the main character of the series. That kind of falls into two characters, uh, Satoshi and Ayumi. They're kind of like the, they get the main focus in the first and second. And Ayumi is the main character of the third game that hasn't come out yet. Um, her death isn't the most gruesome, which that falls to a couple different characters, mainly the character Mayu. Um, she's actually not my favorite character from the game, though she's pretty high up there. My favorite character is the. Um some Badass with the Heart of Gold, Kishinuma. Because I really like his character I I like the way they handle him in both games and in the anime. And her death arguably on a scale wise it's not the most tragic, though on a personal level, for one of the other characters it probably is. Uh the more most tragic ones are probably more spoilers, uh Sachiko and Yoshie uh, Shinozaki, which actually their deaths are the impetus for the entire problem of, like, the plot, which you don't find out until very later in the game. But it had the biggest impact on me, personally. And so for the first game, the whole plot of the first game is a group of students and their teacher are performing a ritual, which one of them, she's kind of into, like, occult stuff, the character Ayumi, and they use this charm called the Sachiko Ever After Charm. And it's supposed to, from what she read, it's supposed to allow friends to be friends forever as long as they, basically they all rip apart the charm while chanting, Sachiko, we beg of you, and they all, you keep your peace of the little little paper charm. Um, Chapter one, unfortunately, shortly after they do this, they all end up in this haunted school called Heavenly Host Elementary, which was actually demolished about, I think they say like 30 years prior. So bad shit goes down. Apparently. Yeah. The The first chapter focuses on Seiko Shinohara and her best friend Naomi. Uh, and and as, basically you start off with as confused as the characters They don't know where they are. They don't know where the heck they are. They stumble across a couple weird things. Like they see a little image of a creepy little girl in a red dress at one point. They run into a couple spirits. Um, eventually they end up in in an infirmary and decide to rest as Naomi hurt her ankle when they were transported there. And Seiko leaves her because they hear the cries of another character. It's a little sister of one of their friends. So Seiko goes off to try and find her. Uh, Unfortunately, the infirmary is haunted, of course, and Naomi Naomi is attacked by this creepy, weird spirit thing that's basically eyes on a black figure. And... When Seiko rushes back, she tries to comfort Naomi, but Naomi just screams at her and kind of freaks, has a mini freak out, understandably, and says, you know, like, we're all going to die here, and now she's starting to cry because she realizes she'll be like a burden to her parents, like, they'll never know where she is. They don't even know where they are, and so she eventually just lashes out at Seiko, and you're given a choice. You could actually say apologize or stay silent, and... However, the game is a cruel monster, and even if you pick Apologize, uh, Seiko ends up going off on her own, and Naomi can't even say the words, I'm sorry. And you see Seiko wandering around. You get to control her for a couple minutes, and she's really sad about how she, Naomi just treated her. And, but then she hears something or someone calling for her. You then go back to Naomi. You're up on the third floor of the building, which is where the bathrooms are. And you hear one of the stall doors in the girls' bathroom opening and closing, even though it was locked earlier. You open it up, and with, like, these big boom, boom, boom sounds, you see Seiko hanging by a noose. Oh, dear. Yeah, barely alive. You see that she's still barely alive. Naomi tries to help her, but she tries, you know, the noose just gets tighter. You then run out of the bathroom, and you can pick up this nasty-looking bucket filled with... Lord knows what, and to put underneath her feet. But right when you get back, you get this horrifying image of Seiko hanging there. you get got to let the interspersed anime images in, and you get one of her hanging there, eyes completely white, and just kind of hanging by the noose. And the, the chapter. this is the first chapter of the game, and it ends with Naomi crying and screaming and wondering why Seiko hung herself. And sad, the fact that she couldn't, she, didn't, she wasn't able to apologize to her best friend. What a twist. Yeah. So this is the first death you see in the game. And for me personally, this suddenly changed everything. To me, this meant everyone can die. Any of the main characters can die. Seiko is not the, first, is not the only main character to die while they're there. And at first, I actually thought it was possible to save her. Because when I was when you control the game, you can walk up to her and hit a button to try to help her down, try to get the noose you know out of her neck. But and I was thinking, oh, I should run out to go get the bucket first, which I actually tried that in a my second playthrough of the game. And uh, yeah, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> was the game bug out or something? Oh no, you get a bad ending. This, this game likes to mess with you if you do certain things out of order or. Um, read certain things. If you do certain stuff, the game will kill you, will do like this horrifying death. And so with um, this one, what happened was I ran out, got the bucket. It didn't work. And Naomi sat back down against the wall. All of a sudden, these little ghosts appeared around her and she shoved a pair of scissors down her throat. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so as I... Continued to play, it sank in. I was like, oh god, you know, she's dead. There was no way to save her. However, it's actually not the end of her in this game, and I'll get to more when we come back from a break. (laughs) Alright, we're back. Okay. Yeah,
0: I can see why this game is a little uh, messed up. Yeah. It's rated M, by the way, if you couldn't figure that out yet. (laughs) Well, a main character hanging herself probably gave that
1: away. Yeah. And so when you get to chapter four of the game, you're controlling the character Satoshi, Satoshi Moshida, who's one of the, he's one of the two main characters, and everyone kind of gets their own focus, but he's, I think in the original, original version of the game, he was supposed to be the main protagonist, and you can see it. And you stumble across Seiko's phone, and he sees something on it. And but they don't go into detail. And so he finds Naomi. I won't go into details. What happens when you find her at first? It's, this one's also kind of freaky, and you can screw up. You can screw up what happens, <laughs> resulting in a really odd end of that chapter. And so she blames herself for Seiko's death. Like she said, you know, I yelled at her. I didn't apologize. You know, she hung herself because of all the things I said. So, to add a little bit of wrinkles to the mystery. Sato, she goes no, and gives her Seiko's phone, and it's an unsent text is sitting open on her phone, and the subject: no hard feelings. And I won't read off what the whole text says. You you got to play the game. And though it's. It's the sec- It's one of the many examples in the game of Seiko having absolutely no shame. She's actually responsible for a, for the most infamous line in the entire game in chapter one. I won't say it. You can find it out online. It's very funny, and awkward. Um, so Naomi is at least partially put at ease because you know, you know it wasn't her what she said. You know Seiko. You know didn't hang herself. It had there had to be something else involved. It had to be the school is the school you find out the school can actually kind of warp people's minds if they're if they're susceptible to it you know for kids oh (laughs) no it's not (laughs) (laughs) um you actually and then you can get a bonus uh, bonus scene which it actually has its own page on the corpse party wiki this scene and it's I didn't know it was there until much later I looked it up on uh, TV Tropes and did the entire walkthrough to get it because it sounded uh, it was it's really good it's also kind of tear-jerkery as well, um, Naomi has a dream where Seiko is there, and she's speaking with her, and Seiko then says, you know, like, I'm gone now, and she confesses she was in love with Naomi. And this kind of shows... R- yeah, it shows earlier in the game, and it's expanded on in Book of Shadows. Um, she says, like, a lot of flirty stuff and things like that. And so she says, you know, before she disappears, she just wants Naomi to kiss her. So as the player, you're, you're given an option to kiss or not kiss her, which, yeah, I like the way TV Tropes put it, which was, yeah, because you're totally not going to, right? That, like, I'm sorry, only the cruelest monster would choose no on this. <laughs> yeah, though, after you do it, Naomi wakes up and goes, what the hell was that? Like, kind of really confused about it. And so you then get, by the time you get to the final chapter of the game, Naomi's still, like, in a shaky condition, and you see this large zombie-like guy who's been terrorizing you throughout a lot of the game, and who's actually not the scariest dude in the game, uh, dragging Seiko's corpse. So she she runs after him because she kind of just loses it, and goes like, no, you can't take her body away. And so you eventually stumble she eventually stumbles across a TV and a videotape. Uh one of the people that got trapped in the school was a guy with a camera and he recorded this. So that's where this comes from. And she finds something very shocking. Uh she finds out it was her under the control of the school that hung Seiko. Like she didn't and she completely forgot this, which explains why Needs a little therapy at
0: the end of the game, I'm sure. Oh, yes.
1: Um, And so she sees this, and the next time you see her, she joins up with the others again, and the surviving characters are able to escape the school at the very end. And so, but during the last part of the ending, she tells Satoshi, like, the whole story. Basically, you find out what happened. So she starts she started to cry, she started falling prey to the darkening of the school. Like you see all this dark mist and stuff around her. And she keeps crying saying, like, you know, Seiko must hate her, must hate her. Suddenly her phone goes off and she looks at it and the text that Seiko never sent to her is on her phone and it says and all she sees is the subject says no hard feelings and she ignores it and she's like, Oh, it's a cruel joke. It keeps popping in again and again. And she thinks Seiko's just spamming her from beyond the grave. Until finally she looks down and all across her phone all it says is no hard feelings. And it's basically Seiko's spirit you find out that the spirits of the people killed in the school do survive there. And so Seiko (laughs) just kept sending her that text saying, I don't hate you. No hard feelings.
0: Well, aside from Probably running himself on bail.
1: Yeah. So, um, which this moment I hadn't watched this moment in a while, and I started crying again when I saw it. Oh, it's pretty! It's really heart wrenching and heart warming at the same time. Um, she is just a wonderful character. She, like I said, she has no shame. She's responsible for the most infamous line of chapter one, but she is just a really caring and loving character, and this actually this part of her doing this really carries even more weight as like i said all, anyone who dies in the school becomes trapped in there their spirit does but they constantly relive the pain of their death <clears throat> forever and so that's why some of the spirits are evil some of them are kind of neutral and seiko basically avoids this avoids like the pain and everything she doesn't care she maintains the caring that she had and make sure that she gets that message to Naomi saying, you know, no hard feelings.
0: Oh, God, the blue mystery meat. It's killing me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and now I'm going to have a stomachache for all eternity.
1: Oh. Well, there's actually you find out at one point one of the people who died, um, they lived a little bit longer than their friend because they ate their friend. Om nom nom. Yeah, and you actually find a note. Like, you can find notes, and if you read all the notes from the, um, like, the memoirs, you get really bad endings. (laughs) And so that one, like, it just starts off. So that's what
0: the game's teaching kids.
1: Don't read. No, yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Um, And then shortly before this, the game kind of pulls one, like, kind of sticks the knife in you one more time. You find that all the characters of your group that died in Heavenly Host don't exist anymore. Basically they find out that it's like these people never existed to begin with. Hmm. Huh. Which brings well, which brings me to Book of Shadows.
0: Okay. So is this a true sequel? Is this a remake? What
1: is Kind this? of. It is it's more of an anthology. It has 8 chapters in it, 7 of which are just accessed as you finish each chapter. The eighth one, you can unlock one of two ways. Either you view every single ending to all the previous chapters, or you have a save file from the first game. And there are only two parts of it that are actually a sequel. There's an opening video in it that actually, you know how a lot of games have like a little musical intro to them? Yeah. This one actually occurs before the music video intro. So you can accidentally skip over it completely and never know it's there. Whoops. And I watched it the very first time I booted up the game, and this immediately made me want to keep playing it. Like, just immediately made me want to, you know, just go. And this part is a sequel to the first game, and then the final hidden chapter is a sequel that directly leads into the upcoming game, Corpse Party Blood Drive, which I am chomping at the bit to play. And so I mainly bring up this first scene because it's it's it features Naomi, who, of course, on a personal level, is the most affected by Seiko's death, especially since she does, they everyone forgot that she existed outside of the people that escaped from the school. Like she remembers and all her friends that survived with her remember. And so it, oh, you mentioned that, you know, like somebody's going to need some therapy. The scene opens with Naomi's mother on the phone with a therapist saying basically, you know, she's scared. Like her daughter keeps bringing up this imaginary friend, Seiko, that never existed. And Naomi's essentially been depressed since the first game. And she basically cries, you know, I just want my happy little girl back. And the, you know, the therapist is like, you know, we have to tread carefully. We'll eventually bring her back. You know, she'll realize that Seiko doesn't exist. And so she goes to Naomi's room and tries to cheer her up, say, like, oh, you can skip school tomorrow. We'll go shopping. I saw this cute little kitten in a store, which later on you find out that was probably not the best thing. Everyone loves kittens. Uh, I'm not going into that flashback. Um, And so she asks if Naomi's talking to Seiko, and Naomi gets upset and yells at her, saying, like, you don't believe me, so just get the hell out. She starts freaking out and breaking things, and the scene ends as her mother basically tries to force her to take medication to calm her down. And you see her phone is open on the floor, and you see a picture of Seiko, but her face is just a black void. Like, it's completely gone. So there's, like, little pieces of them surviving, but nobody remembers them, no photos exist anymore outside of ones with, like, their face missing. And... So I'll get into chapter one after a break, but just to preface it, chapter one is based off a wrong ending from the first game. They call them wrong ends whenever you get a game mm-hmm. over. And this one was if you goof up in the final chapter, you get they get all stuck in a time loop and only the character Satoshi realizes it. Like he tries to warn everyone not to use the charm because that's what takes them to the to heavenly host. It doesn't work. So this chapter, like I said, is based off of the, time, the wrong time loop ending. However, it starts before the events of the first game. So you get a little, you get more background into Seiko and Naomi's uh, friendship and how they know each other and how they're really good friends. And you can tell, like, she's the closest friend that Naomi has. And there's more hints in there that Seiko likes her, but hides it by acting quirky and goofy. And also realize that Naomi has a crush on, crush on Satoshi, so that doesn't help. <laughs> so they yeah, all yeah,
0: I love triangle, huh? Yeah, yeah, love
1: triangles. Yep, pretty much. Um, so they end up getting thrown into the school again. But throughout the beginning of it, Naomi keeps having these like feelings of deja vu that she's done this before. And you find out that anyone who died previously. There's something you know there's like a mark or something, so she at one point she notices this weird marker on Seiko's neck, but they don't know what it is, and they just kind of ignore it. And so when they eventually show up in the school, it cut, it fast forwards to the part after Naomi escapes from the, um, from the infirmary, and she remembers that Seiko's going to die, that and in this version, she didn't know that she was the one that killed Seiko. So she thinks that she has to try to prevent her from committing suicide. Unfortunately, you don't get to stop her from running away at Furt in the first part at the infirmary, because, again, the game gives you a choice, apologize or not, which, why would you not, unless you're a horrible monster? Um, You try to say sorry, and she ends up coughing up uh, this weird, strange hair from her throat, which was pretty much caused by the spirit in the infirmary and the school itself. Uh, In the second game, like I said, it's like a point and click. It's all first person. And there's something called the darkening, which is part of the story and also the gameplay mechanic, where in the actual gameplay mechanic, you'll see like a bit of redness start to appear on the screen. And if you hit 100% with any of the characters, it kills you. Like you get a really creepy death. So... As Naomi, you have to wander around for a while. She eventually avoids um, this really sharp piano wire that's stretched out among a few hallways, but you get to remove most of it. And eventually, she stumbles into a pit after she opens up the door to the stall where she found Seiko in the first game, and, but she's not there. You can see the noose hanging there. So that's creepy. And she eventually ends up just in a dirty pit. She can't get out. And this creepy-looking little girl with gray skin and a red dress appears, and but says, oh, I can help you. Oh, crap, it's Wednesday from family, uh, Adam's family. Run! Oh, no. It's, uh, but, like, right before Naomi kind of blacks out, her, like, kind-looking face go, kind of gets all twisted. Like, one of her ir- uh, um, irises disappears, and she looks all creepy, which you find out she's, like, main villain of the game like the main antagonist of the game in the first one so seeing this part knowing who she is like the creepiest thing was like oh god oh god what is she gonna do um so naomi suddenly finds herself in the hallways runs into seiko and the two of them apologize hug each other and they find a small room just talk you know they just try to they calm down However, Seiko then says, basically, we might not make this out, make out of here, so she says, I want you to kiss me, and she says, you know, she's in love with Naomi, and that's when she reveals it in this game. Naomi kind of freaks out, un- kind of understandably, and... Run- I don't want to be a TV trope. No! Yeah, no, she just kind of, like, gets all nervous, she runs out of the room, but she realizes she needs to go back because she hurts Seiko's feelings, Um, however, she immediately is attacked by, like, the the darkening I mentioned, and is forced to relive a memory that I am not going to talk about, because it is the saddest thing ever created, and I do not want to discuss it. Play the game, or watch a Let's Play. I don't care. I'm not talking about it. Yeah, I I can't get there. I do not want to replay chapter one of this game again, just because I do not want to have to read this scene ever again, of how just depressing it is. Um, Naomi regains consciousness on the third floor once again and finds Seiko hanging by the noose. However, you can save her. you can remove the, you are actually able to remove the noose and get her out of the stall and when I reached this part in the game when I had that happen, I like breathed a sigh of relief. I was like,, oh, you can save her this time, you know you it's okay, you can rescue her. However, after she recovers slightly, she looks at Naomi, screams, and runs off, because we all know why, after the events of the first game. However, Naomi doesn't get it. Naomi chases after her, but then all you hear is, thump, 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 thump. And she finds that Seiko ran through the piano wire, and it cut her head off.
0: Now we're just talking Final Destination, silly.
1: Yeah, this is... This part, though, freaked me the crap out because I did not see this coming. I thought for, like, legitimacy that you could save her despite the little creepy girl being the villain. She, of course, still questions why Seiko ran away and the entire... The chapter ends with Naomi just clutching Seiko's head and crying over it while the little creepy girl laughs at her and licks Seiko's blood off her arm and is just disturbing. Um, yeah. You have problems, Japan. Yeah. Um, I played Book of Shadows when it came out in the U.S. last year, and I thought it was the best story out of every game that came out in 2013, basically in terms of, like, drama, tragedy, everything. And I had played it in January of last year. So no other game that came out last year after it hit me as hard as this one did. Or it even came close. The only other game stories I really liked were more humorous ones, like Hyperdimension, Neptunia of Victory, and Saints Row 4. Which I recommend those as well. But And I'm not ashamed of it. I cried when Seiko died the second time, and especially during Naomi's heart-wrenching flashback that, again, I'm not going to discuss. And, again, I cried again while I replayed the chapter for this podcast. Yeah. Seiko is a tragically wonderful character who, she's a caring friend to Naomi, and you find out basically her mother disappeared when she was younger, and she helps raise her little brothers. She's like a surrogate mom to them. So she's essentially like the most honor, like nicest character in the entire game, and her death in the first one, like I said, what changed the whole game for me, and that and the no hard feelings scene at the end of the first game, just oh, it's so sad and so tragic. And there's still one game left, Corpse Party Blood Drive. It's coming out in Japan this month, actually, and I'm. Praying that Exe localizes it, and it's implied in Book of Shadows that it's possible to resurrect the characters that died at Heavenly Host. Um, Naomi and Ayumi try this on the character Mayu in Book of Shadows, and it does not go well at all. Like you remember, the, you remember all the human transmutation scenes in uh, Full Metal Alchemist. Yeah, yeah, that's that's child's play compared to what happens here. It it, is frightening. Um, And like I said before, I think resurrections can lessen impact of deaths like Dragon Ball Z, where they just keep reviving people. Though if it's like a one-time thing, I'm more forgiving. I honestly would like to see Seiko revived just, you know, just for her sake and for Naomi's sake. No one ever dies in between these games. They always come back to life. Yeah. Uh, if she if they don't bring back the other characters then you know that they might do that because they're pretty uh, cruel uh, book of shadows ends on like this massive cliffhanger uh to the point where the voice actor for ayumi actually yelled at the producers of the game and said like how could you end the game like this <laughs> like i'm not kidding she in the game you see these little uh, interviews with the actors and she goes on for 10 minutes Longer than anybody else, and she mentions this. She's like, "How could you do this? What, what's wrong with you? No, we have to make a sequel. I want all of you to bug the creators of the game so they make another one." Yeah, well, that doesn't always work out well. Capcom. Ugh. Yeah, but I so said they are making a final one, Blood Drive, and I'm looking forward to it. If only just to see what happens is I, I need to see maybe you know, to see what happens but if they bring back the characters if not if maybe they get like a good maybe they just right. release their spirits from being trapped in the school but yeah no, I this is the most, probably the biggest death for me in any single game and probably from like TV shows too okay. is I rewatched the first episode of the anime and. Yeah. It's pretty brutal brutal in that one too. All right. All right.
0: Well, we'll get back to this after a break. Sure. back. Alright, my turn. Pretty much, uh, most science fiction people have noticed, since it's pretty much since every major movie that's come out since the 70s, there's either a novelization, or in the case of the big daddies, like Star Wars and Star Trek, they have their own expanded universes. Yay! And, let's be honest here, um, they can be good, they can be bad. I mean, all it is is, they, I mean, they're licensed fan fiction. let's be honest. Every Expanded Universe is, right?
1: Oh, hell yes.
0: It's licensed fan fiction. Yep. But that's not to say there's bad things. In fact, I would dare to say there's actually very good Star Trek books. There's very good Star Wars books. There's very good Halo books, and all on down the line. In this case, we're looking at two Star Wars books. Now, my personal rule about Expanded Universe is, is I try not to read stuff that focuses on, like, the main main characters, so to speak. So, for example, of Star Wars, I don't read about any of the Skywalker clan, Han Solo, and down the line. Now, there are exceptions to this rule. In particular, the Darth Plagueis book is very good, because we kind of get to see how the Emperor gets falls to the dark side and rises to political power. So it's the Emperor so,
1: how the Emperor's old groove? Pretty much, yes. <laughs> now I'm going to have to
0: call it that for a more. <laughs> Um And then, within the Star say Star Trek, uh, Khan Nian Singh has his own uh, three-book tr- uh, three, three book series that is extremely good, that gives m- a lot even better insight into the character, which we'll get to another day. But, for me, in this case, um, there was a video game out there uh, that came out, I want to say early 2000s, it was... Right around the same, the nights the old Republic games are coming out, and it's Star Wars Republic Commando. Now, the thing that was novel about the game at its time, and I, I don't, honestly, you have to tell me—I don't think I've ever heard of any of this before. But the whole thing was it was squad-based AI. You were the commander of a four-man squad, and you could order your ter- AI control troops to go defend that ridge, go pick up that weapon, whatever you want to say. Yep. And there, I don't know if there's anything, anything like before that, but.
1: Oh, well- Kinda, of, but it sucked. You remember right. you remember Daikatana? Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's oh. how single player worked.
0: <laughs> okay. In this case, Republic Commando, the game is hard, but the com the the uh squad AIA was actually pretty decent. So and it, the thing is is they were really trying to show the clone troopers at the time as individuals instead of just the voiced by the exact same guy no matter what you do type Hmm. in all the movies in fact in the game the four major squad members each have their own voice actor oh cool yeah including the guy who played Fat. he plays uh, the player character boss
1: oh nice yeah yeah. I I just recently started playing it I need to get back to it along with a billion other games so yeah it's very hard
0: now there's actually a series of books that came out concurrent with the game like the first book came out and this is where I pick up the books and game focus on a, about a dozen people basically in the Clone War that aren't major movie characters. It's three groups of clone troopers. We have Delta Squadron, which is the guys from the games. We have Omega Squadron, which are only in the books. And we have the Null class ARC troopers, which are kind of like – they're essentially clone intel. Mm. These guys are walking armies, one-man walking armies essentially is how they're put. <laughs> there are six of those guys, and they come in, in and out. And we have their supervising Jedi, which is uh, Bard and Jessic and Itain Berkten, which we'll go into, and two Mandalorian training sergeants, Kauskarata and Wellen Vau, who, as the, this major master group of people, and the people they meet kind of navigate the Clone Wars to stay alive and deal with the emotional and physical trauma of war. <laughs> Uh, where this series got in trouble, author Karen Travis, by the way, is that she—you um, d- could tell she had a delight of like personal pleasure in upending the traditional Jedi are good um, mythos that George Lucas tries to hammer home pretty hard. Mm. Because um, okay, let's be let's look at this from an outsider's point of view. We're talking about a cast of warrior monks who. Take your child if they have force powers without, and you have no legal recourse if you're a parent. You are, and if you're the kid, you're taken from your parents at a very young age, and Ray is with no legal recourse in this group. And you fight for justice according to a strict standard of what they determined it to be. Mm-hmm. And then the Darth the Sidious, all his machinations, throw the galaxy into war. The Jedi, uh, Jedi essentially buy into a slave army. ...to fight for them. They were talking about human beings, granted, grown, grown twice as quickly, but human beings with no civil rights, and the good monks are leading them as generals. You know, for kids. So, I mean, the book series, I mean, basically it got to Lucas. He, it, it, We really don't know how much this got upstairs, but you can tell she pissed the higher-ups off because that Clone Wars CGI cartoon... Which actually has some good moments, but that's not a story for another day. Pretty much undid all her work about the core group of Mandalorians that she worked with. Hmm.
1: I wonder how so, that would. Ha- I wonder how that would turn out now with Disney being in charge of it. Like, if they would have any. I mean, granted, they've already said flat out, "Yeah, all the uh, expanded universe stuff is now essentially is fan fiction." It has
0: well, I? I pretty much thought that they were referring to pretty much what happened after movie six, but hmm. oh yeah, that too. That's true. But, uh, yeah, I, I wonder how the mouse would tolerate by basically these characters saying, yeah, Obi-Wan is mentioned, but he's an outright glory hound, not a pious monk. Insufferable <laughs> jackass, essentially, is how he's seen. Oh,
1: so in other words, how he showed up in episode three. Yeah. He was an insufferable jackass in that movie. You know what? Everybody in that movie was an insufferable jackass. Right.
0: So the character I'm focused on is General Attain Ter-Makan. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm slaughtering that. I'm just going to call her Atene. Um She is, starts the book series off as a Padawan, quickly promoted to Jedi later. And she basically, she and uh, Omega Squadron work together for the first two books. A Delta Squad is part of the second book. And either due to the whirlwind nature of their lives, genuine physical attraction, or whatever you want to call it, she begins a Romantic relationship with one of the clones, RC1136, aka Darman, is his name. And I'm going to call him Darman for, uh, from here uh, out. And they just begin a romantic and physical relationship. Because that possibly can't go wrong when both the Grand Army of the Republic and the Jedi are like, you're not supposed to do that. Hmm. So, um, so Darman's training sergeant, the guy who basically adopts him. His surrogate father Madeline, Scow- Mandalorian Skarata Scow- Scow- quickly catches wise to the situation, and while he doesn't forbid it because he does view these guys as their s- his sons, effectively, he just like he tells Attain, "Don't break his heart, or you know bad things are gonna happen." Hmm. Now, Attain Now, to make a very long story short, over the five book series, they end up married and having a kid too, oh. again all in secret, almost paralleling the uh, actual Anakin and Padme
1: but so. I'm assuming it's much more well-written.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. Okay, so Itania and the other characters, they kind of quickly ag- admire the Mandalorian ethics in contrast to their own Jedi Order. Uh, the Mandalorians pretty much regard everyone as equals, whether you have the Force or not, whether you're a clone or not. It doesn't even matter what species you are. The Mandalorians pretty much adopt anyone, anyone they regard as worthy into their culture. Whereas Jedi Yeah. I'm gonna start going on a rage if I too go too much more on that. So where okay. the series gets into this is we as inevitably we start building towards the end of the episode three and we know what hap- what's going to happen in episode three. The Republic falls, the Emperor comes Empire comes to power, and all the Jedi die. Because the Emperor wants unlimited power. More or less that, yeah. But we'll get to this after another break. Sounds good. Okay. Execute Order 66. (laughs) Wahaha. (laughs) <laughs> um so yeah, we're not sure what's gonna happen when you're reading through the series. Uh we have two Jedi's who you know, are they gonna survive the order? Are the troopers gonna pull it off? Because we've seen even in series, the clone troopers aren't mindless automatons. They have the free will to even – uh to bend or even outright disobey an order if they don't if they think it's gonna be, keep themselves alive or for the greater good. Mm. So – and considering a lot of clone troopers actually have affection for their Jedi, some do. A lot, of, a lot of the others, it's kind of implied, no, the Jedi are colossal jackasses, and we don't mind pulling the trigger on them. Um, so <laughs> – but let's put it – let's, again – so there's the ascension. what's going to happen? So when the infamous order comes down, and again, nerds, yeah, Mace Windu effectively is a staging a coup d'etat on the dufully elected leader on the Chancellor, even if he's a Sith Lord. Mm-hmm. You heard me. He stages, attempts at a coup d'etat, and we know fails, because unlimited power.
1: Right? Oh, yeah. And what, as the Emperor transforms into Casanova Frankenstein from Mystery Men with his... <laughs> right. So, the Emperor's like, well,
0: Jedi are going to realize who we are, so we gotta kill him. And he executes <laughs> Order 66. So, In recent years, the CGI series and other Star Wars media have tried to recon this as a kind of like a hidden post-knock suggestion, like troopers have no choice in following this. Uh, No, the EU disagreed with that notion pretty hard. Basically, Order 66 was one of 150 last resort plans in case like the worst scenarios happened during the war, Mm. including one that was to remove Palpatine by lethal force as well.
1: I, Should he go cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs? <laughs> Which he did, but yeah. he just he, he gave the Order first. I, I never looked too far into it, because I'll be blunt, I hated <laughs> Episode 3, but the way I saw it was they were just loyal to Palpatine over the Jedi. and right. Okay, that's our new Order.
0: So, attain she's not only married and has a son with Darmen at this point, she's on course when the Order goes down, and with a Wookiee a Kal- with Wookiee ally, and she's actually smart enough to ditch her Jedi robes and identification, and not fight thousands of clone troopers and go underground.
1: Oh my God, a Jedi with common sense! What is this? What are these worlds coming to?
0: Right, her circuit family in the clone troopers that we do know, and the Mandalorians pretty much gave her ample warning, like you know, act. Wow. So she goes underground and sets up a rendezvous point with her husband and the other her extended family here, and they they pretty much they're the, these two Jedi, the squads, they're all planning to desert anyway to a safe, just the planet Mandalore. They ran. They recognize a rendezvous point, and she heads for it. She has to do this, she has to cross a major pedestrian bridge, and she is literally seconds, meters away from her rescue and transport off planet, where, you know, her essentially, uh, uh her people are going to get off when. Other clone troopers, not involved in this, expose other disguised Jedi on the bridge, and a massive fight breaks out in this huge crowd of civilians. Oh, nice. Right, so while – now, we're not really sure why this hap- why she does this, but um, in the middle of this fight, Attain, while she's moved by the love or the force or whatever, so that she actually throws herself in front of a clone trooper mm-hmm. and takes a full lightsaber across the chest. Ouch. And dies almost instantly. Now, she could have drawn her own weapon, she could have force shoved the clone trooper out of the way. You know, there's a number of things she could have done, but she selflessly sacrifices herself for a clone she doesn't even know.
1: If this was something from the movies, I'd say just plot hole, but from the descriptions you've been giving of the books, I'd say it's something that basically the author's leaving up to the reader interpretation.
0: Right. Um so her family, um they take it well. And the fact that her father-in-law, Kals Karada, at this point, he's effectively adopted her as his, his own daughter. She, He picks up a lightsaber, and he then goes proceeds to carve the rogue Jedi into itty-bitty slices in an orgy of violence. Ouch. Yeah. He's wearing armor that deflects lightsabers, and one of the Jedi actually takes the swings at him, and there's a second where the other Jedi's lightsaber bounces off his helmet, and he's just like... Like a second, he's just like, what? And then Cal cuts him into tiny, teeny tiny pieces with another lightsaber.
1: <laughs> so in other words, he got hit and he was like, don't you ever do that again. Oh,
0: yeah. And then while Ordo Scarada, one of the now, the intelligence officers who's like a brother to her at this point, he tries in vain to save Ataine's life mm. with emergency medical care, but, you know, she's gone. And... It's a shock to the reader, because literally, we were seconds away from happy ending. Everyone gets what they want. Mm. And um, her husband, Darman, uh, he watches her die. He can't get to her to save her in time. Mm. And to couple this, one of the other Jedi breaks the back of one of his brothers on Omega Squadron Niner, Mm. and Darman just, yeah, doesn't do Aurora paying Rage of Revenge, but... Instead of getting evac'd with their everyone else, because they have to pretty much drag Cal from chopping everyone around, bitty-bitty mm-hmm. slices. Uh, he likes to stay with Niner, and he's trapped essentially when the Empire rises on Coruscant, unable to go home. Yeah, fun, right? Yeah, you no, know, yeah. He's not only is he trapped away from all his brothers, he can't see his son,
1: and his wife is dead. Oh, so he's wa- he's not exactly walking on sunshine right now.
0: No. So, Attain's senseless death, and let's be honest there this is senseless, mm-hmm. has a massive impact on the clan. They're in this all of this mute shock of grief, and Cal and what's left of the squads, they escape to Nandaloria to pick up the pieces. We see her funeral, where there's a hardly dry eye among them, and even her son puts a stuffed toy on her funeral pyre. Oh. Yeah. Oh,
1: that's... Oh, that's... Oh.
0: So... Um. Yeah. So it it's commented outright by one of the other Jedi in the group that in that moment where she sacrifices herself even if it's senseless, she's she's doing her values. You know, she's living the whole Jedi code in that one second and she's even more Jedi than Yoda at that second. So for the last book, essentially this is book 4 or 5 that her test just hangs over everyone like a shade, and they realize with all their training, all their preparation, they failed when it really mattered most. So her husband's now stranded on Coruscant without his son and with a wounded brother, and while his son's being raised by the protected large-extended family, his he's effectively an orphan. Yeah. I knew it tains, For me, when I was reading this, it tains, she can be annoying at points, but she's a genuine character. She's actually can be almost even a lot of fun because when they go under – when she's part of Undercover Ops because she's a very good actress. But I knew her attain was dress was coming, but it couldn't prepare me for what having to read through this because her death is senseless. She really didn't have to jump in the way of a lightsaber. She could have done a dozen other things and had the same effect.
1: In in the books, do they ever show what happens to um, Darmen and Niner after the war? Like once, uh, like post. (sighs)
0: Well, here's the thing: this was supposed to be a six book series. Uh It was a five book because after the CGI series, pretty much, undid all of Karen's very lovingly crafted work on the series. She rage quit in front of the before the sixth book was written. So Mm -hmm. the fifth book is fifth book kind of ends on a cliffhanger. Darman and Niner they're still Imperial commandos. they have the chance to go home, but don't. It's a long story, and basically darman's because there are more and more Jedi gathering where his son is he's basically on is he basically wants to take a blaster to all of them now, go home and kill all the jedi gotcha so. I, I mean, ultimately, they implied there was going to be a happy ending. It was going to be a rough happy ending. Mm-hmm. The author said, but she's not going to write book six now.
1: I, I because can, of George, I can understand. I yeah. I can see her side of it. With it's, it feels like, oh, you know, I wrote all this, and then they just kind of took a big old dump on it by releasing all this stuff. And yeah, mm-hmm. I I, I, it was, I have a feel. I from what it sounds like, what she was writing in her mind, it was canon. It was part of the story. And now that it's kind of not. Definitely not. Yeah, I can see her not wanting to continue. Well, to be fair, she wasn't. Still, staying. to be fair,
0: yeah. To be fair, this is a very good book series. I like it, mm-hmm. and I I love the subversion of turning the whole good Jedi, right, good people on their on its heads. <laughs> um, yeah. the author in her relationship with her own fans. Basically, if you didn't agree with her on the Jedi, she called you at what was she called Tail Fan. Or brown noser to Lucas, essentially. <laughs> so she didn't really sell her own case when it came time for the CGI series. Got gotcha. So
1: basically, she was doing the polar opposite of all the official stuff. Yeah.
0: I, I mean, she's not like exactly advocating for the
1: Sith, but. <laughs> yeah, she's saying that there's. It's not black and white. There are plenty of shades of gray.
0: Right. And
1: while the CGI series. Because kind of point the
0: Jedi is gray, it's really not that outright. It's still more of a white and black situation.
1: Yeah. Which I mean, that one is, for the most part, Star Wars has been more directed towards kids, which eh, makes sense to. The- yeah, yeah. But granted, I mean, as our next death will cover, there is plenty of room for gray- shades of gray in kids shows. So. Yeah. I, All right. I, I, well,
0: why don't we take a break and get to the last bit. Sounds
1: good. Well fought, my friend.
0: You saved the valley. Uh, you saved the lives of those who live here. And of those who are still to come. Then, there is nothing to regret.
1: And, and we're back. Yep. With the final one, this is going to be about Dinobot in Beast Wars Transformers, and what an interesting timing on this, as the uh, fourth Bayformers movie just came out with Dinobots in it. And from what I understand, they're in wait for, what yeah they're in it for about ten minutes apparently. I mean, I knew Grimlock is in it, but are oh, we talking, like, uh, our Dinobot, or... No, 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 the actually, the Dinobots. I think, oh, you know what, I honestly don't know if the other ones are in it, because I haven't been tempted enough to even give half a damn about that movie.
0: Oh, uh, give me a second. Well, Go ahead and set this
1: up, I'm going to look it up. Okay. Um, this one occurs in Season 2 of the show. It's Episode 9, Code of Hero, which... On the DVD set that I have, it actually advertises on the back saying that this is part of the DVD set. It says the series centerpiece, Code of Hero. So this is a big deal for the show. And again, it's not the first death in the show. It's not even the first good guy death in the show. But it's pretty much the most well-remembered one, and it's the most emotional episode in the entire show, if not the franchise. And yes, I'm including Optimus' death in the 1986 movie. Um, and even, I know we, and we've covered Beast Wars before, we covered it back in our second episode, actually, and this occurs before that one, and we, we brought this up during that episode that Dinobot was dead, but now we're actually going to jump into it, and this is well regarded as, like, the best episode in the show, and was, from what I read on the wiki, the, oh god. Yeah. Oh god! What the fuck? What? There is a
0: di- there is a Dinobot inspired movie in the Bay. Wait, this
1: does not appear. <laughs> I think this is from the games, or no? Wait, it's just a toy. All right, well, sorry, we're looking at horrifying designs of the uh, Dinobots <laughs> from Transformers: Age of Why won't Bay stop making this crap? There's two more yet.
0: Oh God. I forgot Michael Bay got another. Con- he got a contract for three more movie movies. Son of a. Oh. I am so sorry, Transformers fans. I am so
1: sorry. But let's get back to the. Let's get back to the good. Oh, As well. Yeah, let's go back to stuff that's handled well. Well, we'll we'll, men, we'll you know what we can dedicate our own an episode to. Those movies. Oh, I don't know if I can watch them again. I don't. I'm not saying we watch them again. We just go with what we remember. I don't want to watch them again either.
0: All right. Um, so, for background, Dinobot—he's a um, Predacon, mm-hmm. aka Decepticon. Long story. Uh, Turned Maximal. He's essentially switched sides to the good, good guys in the very first episode. But he's not—he's always presented. He's not exactly one of the crew.
1: Yeah. In the context of the show, the reason why he joins them—it wasn't because it's their, you know, their cause or anything. It's because he just doesn't like Megatron, and he—he he wants to join the Maximals and. At first he tries to take command of them, but in the second episode they just accept him into their ranks. And his loyalty is questioned a decent amount in Season 1, and at one point in Season 2 he actually switches sides back to Megatron.
0: Well, we all learn later it's a... I won't say if it's a ploy, but he definitely had ulterior motor just to get close to Megatron in the first place. Yeah. Anyway, so Megatron... At this point, we, we know they're in like four million years in Earth's past, so um, there's definitely proto-humans starting to rise. Mm-hmm. And Megatron's basically, he's trying to do anything he can to change the future, so even, even G1's future, so Predacons aren't the lesser faction.
1: Yeah, he wants it so, to make it so the Decepticons were victorious, which this, this pops up continuously once they find out that they're actually on Earth. At first, they don't realize it, but in season two, it's that's what's revealed in like the second episode. Um, he in a later episode, he um, decides to blow up Optimus Prime's head, so <laughs> he goes to rather extreme measures to do this. Right. In this case, he's just trying to
0: take out humans. Yep. By killing off our ancestors.
1: Yep. The episode opens. Uh, I'm mentioning the opening of the episode because it's important for the ending of the episode. Uh, you see, like, the early humans, and they're looking for food before they're attacked and supposedly killed by a snake. Yeah. Really big, mean-looking snake. Cut to Dinobot. He's, Dinobot's always been portrayed in the show as kind of, you know, he's an honorable warrior. He doesn't want to face a lesser opponent. Like, there's this, there's an episode in Season 1 where Megatron clones him, and the clone can't transform into robot mode. And so Dinobot, after transforming to his robot mode, tries to kill him. When he finds out that his clone can't, he transforms back to his Raptor mode and says, Well, far be it for me to kill an inferior opponent. So right. he for for a Predacon, I mean, it's he follows his own code. I think he falls in like this weird like I said, he's kind of like the gray area. He's in between both sides. You know, he's not a full Maximal, but he's not a full Predacon either.
0: Right. And let's be honest here in the gee, in the Transformers continuity before this there really wasn't people switching sides.
1: No, there was one that I remember ever which was um Skyfire who the big giant jet where yeah. he did switch from Decepticons to Autobots, but that's it. Like it happened once. They they mentioned it a few times that he was a traitor, but yeah, he was the only one that actually switched sides.
0: So when the episode begins, Dinobot's considering his place in the universe, much as if he's even – the fact that he switched sides, that he's kind of betrayed his team once, twice, who mm-hmm. knows more. He walks out to clear his head, and then we'd find out Megatron's just going to eliminate all of the early humanity just to – so humanity never
1: rises on the planet. Yeah, and we even see that Denobot's betrayal affects – we actually see a real effect on the team. Like, the other characters aren't seen as total black and white. Like, Rattrap, who was constantly calling him a Predacon throughout a lot of Season 1, eventually kind of started to develop some respect for him when Dinobot turns on them in an earlier episode and then has to be rejoined. Rattrap gives the final say in it, and he goes like, you know I feel about a little chop a face? You know, he lists off all these horrible things, but he goes, eh, but I've kind of gotten to like him. And so when the two of them kind of clash a little bit in this one the only time they run into each other before the finale rat trap says to him he goes you know i used to think i had you pegged Well, I mean, sure he's a slag spout and sorry and but at least you know where he stands guess we live and learn huh and dinobot basically has no response to this he like as rat trap leaves he thinks to himself you know he's right but and i a deed once done cannot be undone but it may yet be mitigated. And he heads off to, we're not 100% sure what he's going, to, what he's planning to do at this point. And so he tracks down Tarantulas, and because he knows Tarantulas will have all the inside info, but because he's looking for information on the Golden Disk, basically something Megatron stole out of Cybertron. And Tarantulas says, no, nah, there's no more copies. He's hanging on to it. He doesn't want any more security breaches. They find Megatron as he demonstrates that the disc shows images from Earth's present or future, and it allows him to do things. You know, it gives him knowledge of the future so he can affect it. And as we said, he goes, "This valley is where the humans, the human race, will spawn out of, and it's because of them. You know, it was their interference that helped the Maximals. I mean, the Autobots defeat the Decepticons, most likely." Mentioning characters, bring it, you know, they don't mention them, but most likely referring to characters like Spike and Sparkplug. And so Dinobot, realizing this, tries to call up the Maximals, gets shot by Tarantulas, takes out Tarantulas and lets them know, but refuses to hold off until the Maximals arrive so they can all fight because he knows there's no time. And he says, the question which once haunted my being has been answered. The future is not fixed. My choices are my own. And yet, how ironic. For now I find I have no choice at all. I am a warrior. Let the battle be joined. And then he... Yeah. it's kind
0: of, And he says it in front of the sunset. Yeah. And he posts yeah, kind with of, his sword. And it's right. pretty epic. Right. And then he proceeds to take out every
1: Predicon. Oh, yeah. And a brutal fight, too. Like, he chops Inferno in half with his sword. Like, just... This, Dinobot's sword isn't just like normal blade on it; it's like this big drill, so it just kind of drives it through Inferno vertically. It's pretty nasty. Uh, I, I will mention in the re-airings of this when they were editing, when they were kind of censoring the show. Yeah, this got cut to crap. Imagine it, that they edited the hell out of this, and it eventually goes to Megatron looking down on him saying, like, oh... One of my favorite lines. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lowly turncoat fighting against impossible odds. It almost brings a tear. Fortunately, such moments pass quickly. Quick strike. Scrap him. And so Quick Strike, the uh, cowboy villain, Okay, um, they never really explain that. And so he blasts Dinobot, and Dinobot shoots him once with his eye lasers, but then they short out. And he gets a warning from the computer saying, "You know, warning: power dangerously low." And quick strike. But then we get this. This whole episode is full of just awesome one-liners and line groups. We get the "What's a warrior without weapons?"
0: A warrior
1: still. He then just beats the crap out of Quick Strike and suplexes him into a set of rocks. <laughs> And he then gets a warning saying, you know, further exp- you know, you're at like six percent power, further expenditures could result in loss of spark. But he shuts off the automatic uh stasis lock so he can continue.
0: He continues to uh so he's wrecked every other uh Verticon except Megatron and He's gotten almost pretty much nothing left while Megatron just
1: kinda gloats sit there and gloats over him. Oh yeah. His line when he walks in just Megatron is such a just huge jerk in this episode. And he comes off as like the cockiest guy ever. Because yeah, Dinobot's gone through his entire forces, but Dinobot's half dead. Like I love the damage detail they put on they put on him in this episode. Because in some episodes, I mean, when characters got damaged, they didn't really show it too much unless it was Waspinator. He did. Or, well, there are exceptions.
0: Yeah. Ryanx having a hole through his chest. Oh yeah,
1: there was that. Or uh, uh, when Tarantulas got set on fire. Mm-hmm. That that was interesting. But they did, a, I mean, you can literally see through the raptor, like, the raptor head on his chest, you see a hole in it. And he's, like, mm-hmm. he's all black, he's got pieces of him are ripped off. Megatron then just stomps in in his T-Rex mode, so he's not even essentially ready to fight. That's how cocky he is. And as Dinobot just goes, Megatron, he walks in. "Hmm." My ears are burning. Yes, white Dinobot, what a delightful surprise. Let's see, where are we now? I have the golden disc. I have the power to change the future. And the only remaining obstacle in my path to unimaginable glory is yourself. Exhausted. Damaged beyond recovery. Defeated. Yeah. So he's a magnificent bastard. Yep. And Dinobot prepares to attack him, but Megatron goes, uh oh, uh oh, oh. one more step, and it's raining bits of early anthropoid.
0: He's got a proto-human tied up, yeah. Yep.
1: And he says, you were weakened before you started Dinobot. Weakened by compassion. And... In an admittedly awesome, yet head-scratchingly kind of dumb moment, Dinobot performs this badass flip, picks up a stick, and just starts hitting Megatron with it. Yeah, <laughs> Megatron kind of knocks him back down. <laughs> and he's just like, what are you doing? Yeah, like, really, Dinobot, a stick against a trans-metal? <laughs> Face it, Dinobot, you're obsolete technology. What can you possibly do? Improvise. He then attaches a rock to the stick creating like a hammer, and just knocks Megatron to the ground with it, catches the golden disc, and annihilates it with his eye lasers. You see shards of it falling everywhere as he drops to the ground.
0: So the Max will show up and drive off Megatron and they basically have to sit there and watch their comrade die. Yeah. Good times.
1: Yeah. And Rhinox says, you know, Cheetor asks, is there anything we do, can we do? And Rhinox says, no, he's too far gone, even for stasis lock, which is kind of the, stasis lock means the character's in a temporary coma, we can revive them as long as we shove them in, the like a CR tank or the recovery chamber thing that they have, you know. The MacGuffin, yeah. Exactly, like, they're still okay. So this kind of, so using the in-universe terms, they're basically saying, yeah, he's done, there's no way to save him or even you know, preserve him, before, you know, so we can heal him. And he gives them his final words, which I like how he has, like, a little back and forth with Rat Trap. Like, Rat Trap repeats the line from the beginning of the episode and says, you know, like I said, you're just a slag spouting Saurian, but it's nice to know where you stand. And we get a little uh, barbie at him, and he goes, upwind of you for preference, vermin. And I like that because it's basically them saying, like, you know, they, they respect each other and they're friends, but, the, you know, he wants to give Rattrap one last little dig, and Rattrap even smiles after he says it. All right.
0: And then we get Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, Hamlet. So Yeah. Even.
1: Which he was actually quoting this earlier in the season, too. Right. Well, if you
0: if you really believe what you read on that, net, apparently the voice actor, Scott McNeil, who really needs to give credit here uh, – He was trying to read the dying lines and the show staff behind the curtain since he couldn't stop laughing.
1: I I read this.
0: And he asked in character, do you mind? I'm trying to die here. (laughs) (laughs) And that's
1: why we love him.
0: (laughs) So he reads uh, straight out of Hamlet. Tell my tale to all who ask. Tell it truly the ill deeds with the good. Let me be judged accordingly. The rest is silence, which is pretty much the... is the final lines of Hamlet, so
1: and they work perfectly for Dinobot too. Oh yeah,
0: so Dinobot dies and we see a Spark fly off back towards the Cybertron. Mm-hmm. And, it, and yeah, yep. they do a missing man funeral, which is, I mean, let me put it this way: it it comes close to Star Trek Two, the good one, mm-hmm. the Spock's funeral.
1: There's another Star Trek Two. We I'm don't.
0: Sure. We've mentioned this before.
1: <laughs> I mean, I thought that was Star direct into hot mess. Something like that. The episode concludes with a good bookend um, to the beginning of the episode where you see the the early human that Dinobot saved. He picks up the hammer that Dinobot used to beat Megatron. And so he rolls around and knocks out that snake that tried to attack him at the beginning of the episode.
0: And they're having snake for dinner tonight. Yep.
1: So I, I like the fact that not only did Dinobot save them, he gave them the you know he kind of gave them the impetus means to defend themselves now.
0: And it was much easier than a Blackrock monolith that isn't well explained. <laughs> Bam! <laughs> Tuck it, old respect. We're just, making, no, no, we're just making
1: fun of everything today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh yeah, I made fun of two
1: thousand one. Ate it, old fiction science fiction nerds. Yeah, well, uh, there might. I have a feeling more people would have a problem with us ragging on that than on Star Trek and the darkness or the Bay yeah. movies. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, opinion. So, what did you think of this episode?
0: Oh, uh, gosh. Um, I'd actually left the show by this point. I started watching it when it was premiering in season one, and probably halfway through season two. But it wasn't my fault. This is. I guess you would call Family Guy Syndrome. Not that I like that show either. Um, the local Warner Brothers affiliate kept moving it around uh. all the time. So I really never knew when and where it was going to be on consistently. To the point that they were only showing it on Sunday like early afternoon. So I was just like, forget it. There's other shows to watch. Which is a shame because I wish I had seen this and it's Prime. But I didn't. I actually went back later and watched it. And while well, I didn't probably get uh, teary-eyed with it, you know, definitely... It, it definitely hits you. It's a hard episode to watch because uh, it's a beautiful deconstruction of that hero complex a lot of us had. You know, everyone growing up, oh, we want to go out in a blaze of glory and, you know fighting these hordes of enemies and but no one ever stops to consider how messy battle or death is going to be mm. or and how really there's no real glory in war even um when it, even even whether it's swords or bullets
1: yeah this is this is the best episode of the damn show i mean yep. uh, heck it might be the best episode of the entire franchise i mean this is just Near perfect. Yeah, there's a couple little gaps here and there. Yeah, and at the end, Rat Trap's model is the original one when they're um disintegrating Dino Bot, which on the wiki they mentioned the director was pissed when he saw that. He was so pissed at the animators and it was too late to go back and fix it. He's like, I cannot believe they missed that.
0: Well, this is actually the only episode of that series they story ported out in advance.
1: Yeah. And the only episode of the series where one of the direct, like where one of the creators directed it too and uh, bob ford directed it and he said this is this along with the agenda 1 through 3 is his favorite episodes and one of the other creators larry Dottillo, said yeah this is my favorite episode i had nothing to do with it but this is my favorite episode i think it's the best one
0: huh. transmutate definitely comes as a close second for me because this really raised the bar what hasbro could do with morals or drama, or plots. I mean, let's be honest here. If you've ever watched G1 Transformers, um, <laughs> how do I put this gently? The stakes aren't exactly um, this deep. Yeah. The, or personal.
1: Yeah. Or you don't have morally great characters. Yeah. Granted, it was also a different time when that was out, because there were very... Yeah. There were, I don't any 80s cartoons that really dealt with stuff like this at the time, so... But... This one, I mean, it really stands up. Is if you think about it, every Transformers show is about selling the toys. So well, Any
0: kid's show is practically like
1: that. This is true. But this one, I mean, they based it so they could market the toys. I mean, that's what the whole basis of the franchise is for in the first place. But, so you've got to think that the creators of this didn't have to do something like this. They didn't have to make an episode this good. They didn't have to make something where we really get attached to the characters like this. And they put a lot of effort. They, you can tell so much effort was put into this, so much care was put into it. There's music in this episode that doesn't show up in any other part in the series. I mean, they recorded brand new music for it. And yeah. Scott McNeil really deserves respect for this. Because Yeah, we mainly know him for some of the more over-the-top moments in this show or in other shows too, or just kind of him acting kooky at cons and stuff, but...
0: Oh, he's hilarious to watch at con. Yeah,
1: but this episode proves he can do drama. I mean, he did dramatic acting really well in this episode. So it also shows a new range of what he can do.
0: James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones once said that voice acting is harder... Than traditional acting not because you have no physical, you can't mm-hmm. use any physical hues, you can't use your facial expressions, you have to pull everything off with your voice. Yep. So, for Chris Rock to make that arrogant statement like, this is the easiest job in the world, I just talking to a microphone and get a million dollars, screw him. <laughs>
1: um, but yeah, and I, my opinion, this is the best usage ever of humans in all of Transformers. Because, it, seconded. Yeah, they don't feel like they're forced into the story. They are a natural part of this plot. They are there simply to make the stakes higher, and it works perfectly. And unfortunately, before I watched this episode for the first time, I knew Dinobot had died. Is I kind of saw the final episode of the show like just out of nowhere. I didn't realize it was going to be the final one, but they mentioned that Dinobot had died, and this was like a, it was a clone in that one. But when I first saw this episode, I, it was like in the morning, and it aired. I had no idea what was going to happen. I just saw Code of Hero, and as it was going, I'm like, this "Is the one where he dies?" And then when I, even though I knew was coming, it really hit me. I mean, I was—I have to admit—I shed at least a couple tears. And it's perfect way for this character to go out too, because he didn't. I mean, he did it to be. A hero, but he also did it saying, you know, I'm a warrior. He never calls himself a hero. So I like that, too, that, you know, he was also humble about it, saying, like, yes, I did a good thing here, I have no regrets, period. I did do bad things in my life, but I'm not, there's no regrets at all. So, yeah, no, I, he's a great character. Uh, Rat Trap is my favorite from this show, but Dinobot, I think, is a close second. And it also shows the difference between real care and real effort put into Transformers as opposed to the movies, right, or the live-action movies. But we'll go into that another time, but yeah. You're assuming, yeah. It shows... Those the, need to be... Yeah, it shows the real peak of what this franchise can do.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that wraps, just wraps us up. Yep.
1: So next time... <laughs> Oh dear.
0: Oh. Oh. It's our first segment of what we're calling direct to video hell.
1: Oh god, yeah. We were we were gonna do a different movie for this next Originally
0: one. Originally it was supposed to be uh Dragonheart has a sequel. Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll get to it another day.
1: But I definitely wanna cover yeah. it. Yeah. So one the the other week we're chatting on Gmail or Google chat and uh Pete sends me his thing. He's like, Dude, I'm watching Superman brainiac attacks this is horrible it's like really I hear it's bad and he sends me a link I watch the whole thing on YouTube we're, we're gonna have to quote some of the moments from our Google chat for this just uh, <laughs> well
0: beyond the plot which first drew
1: me like why is Lex Luthor's voice so bad oh my god what it is we're gonna we're gonna have an interesting moment with this one in the next episode uh, prepare for lots of screaming oh yeah lots of ranting <laughs> oh my god. So, next time, direct to video Superman. Hell. Yeah, Superman, Brainiac Attacks.
0: See you next time, everyone. Breathe. We'll get to it. Tell my tale to those who ask. Tell it truly. The evil deeds, along with the good and let me be judged accordingly. The rest is silence.